You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. With that being said, we're starting a new sermon series working through the book of Philippians uh, this morning. And I'm always tempted when we begin a new book um, for a sermon series especially when I'm tasked with the first sermon, it's always a hard task because I'm tempted, one, one, to preach the text, but also to kind of like put on a professor hat and, and do all this work of like showing, okay, here's the history, here's the context, here's the ways that we should be reading this book. And, and I want to hesitate to do that a lot this morning um, because it's true, like the book of Philippians was written by a specific man named Paul who was an apostle to a specific people, the church at Philippi, at a specific time and place and, and social and political and religious context. And, and all of that leads to the way that we read the book and understand the book. But most importantly, the, the letter to the Philippians is God's word for God's people for all time. And so, so we want to read it as such, that to understand that, like, okay, this letter was not just written from Paul to the church at Philippi, but it was written by the Spirit of God to us here in Houston 2,000 years later so that we can glean from it and, and be shaped by it and understand the beauty of God more. Um, so I'll provide very brief context, insufficient context even, but just enough so that we can kind of know what's going on. And then we're going to read the text and, and allow God to use it to speak to us. And so at the time that this letter was being written, the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome. And um, because he was in prison in Rome, he was suffering and unsure of his future. He, he didn't know whether he was going to live or die. He didn't know whether he was going to see any of his friends or the churches that he had planted, specifically the Philippians, ever again. And, and so he was suffering and unsure of the future. And meanwhile, he's writing to the church at Philippians, who for various reasons were also suffering and unsure of the future. One of the reasons is because their cherished and beloved leaders, Paul and Timothy, are away in Rome, and they don't know if they're ever going to see him again. They're facing financial concerns. They're facing a lot of opposition, both from within and outside the church, and so they're suffering and unsure of the future. And yet, when we read the letter to the Philippians, it's not a sob story of suffering. It's rooted in this theme of joy and knowledge and standing firm in the faith in the midst of uncertainty. It's a call to to grow in the faith, to stand firm in the faith. It's a letter that, that deals a lot with just understanding, like, how do we wrestle with the concepts of life and death as, as Christians in a broken world? It's a letter about thoughtfulness and knowledge and about God renewing our minds to see things for what they are. It's a, it's a letter about brotherly love and, work, and unity. And most importantly, it's a letter that that is rooted and, and focusing on the supreme grace and love of God, which makes our momentary lives, regardless of the suffering we're experiencing or the uncertainty that we're facing, it makes our momentary lives really all about the glory and grace of God and, and not about our circumstances. And so this isn't just a book for the Philippians 2,000 years ago. This is definitely a book for us, for the church in a world of uncertainty. And so let's pray and let's, let's dive into the text together. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for your grace. We thank you for the ways that we celebrate that um, through 
through men and women gathering in another part of our city uh, this morning who didn't gather in another part of our city last week. And we thank you for that. We ask that you would, in our time in Philippians, both this morning and for the next eight weeks, that you would use it to, to bolster our faith, to show us the beauty of your love, the grandeur of your kingdom, the, the grace of your son, so that we might be shaped more and more to be a people who enjoy you and bring you glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, so this letter to the Philippians, it begins with a greeting in the first few verses uh, that's following a really standard pattern, both like if you read Paul's letters throughout the New Testament and really Greek letters at the time, it kind of had a standard greeting. You say, who's writing the book? In this case, Paul says, he's writing it along with Timothy and who you're sending it to. And so in this case, to the saints of the church at Philippi, along with the overseers and deacons, and then um, in a traditional Greek letter, there'd be a greeting of some sort, and usually it would be the Greek words that would, that would translate best to greetings and good health. But because Paul knows that saying greetings and good health are just empty, vague phrases from a, a pagan or secular culture, he changes that and says, no, this is, this is a book rooted in the grace of God. This is a letter rooted in the grace of God. And so he says, grace and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how the letter begins. Um, but then he moves on to kind of the body of this introduction, which is this prayer in verses 3 through 11. And it's a prayer full of thankfulness and expectation, and it's full of joy, which is remarkable considering the circumstances both Paul and the Philippians are in. But I think the thing that's most obvious when we read these eight verses is, is that this prayer of Paul is just dripping with his love for these people. And so I'm going to read it again as Chase read it for us. And I just want you to consider, how much does Paul love these people? He says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, and it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When I was reading that and, and, and studying and making notes uh, this week, the the love and the tone and the disposition of Paul in that made me think of when, when I was in college and, and my college pastor, he had this beautiful ability to lovingly encourage me and challenge me, and he would give me a vision for the next steps in the faith that he thought I should take. And, and, and the, the challenges that he would give to me would have seemed daunting to me or undesirable to me if they had been my own idea or maybe had come from a different source. But because of the, the relationship that I had 
with Rusty, who, who really became kind of this father figure for me in a time that I really needed one. And, and because of his disposition, he was go- godly and kind and thoughtful. And, and it was clear that he really wanted to see God mold me and, and other college students into real men and women of character and substance and faith and godliness, that, that the way he would engage would lead me to experience these challenges and these calls and sometimes even these rebukes with, with such charity. He would, he would sit down and he would always tell me things that he saw in me, whether it was things in my character or my personality or, or things that I had done, things that he saw and that he appreciated or, or that he was thankful for. And then he would... He would express gratitude for ways that I served, whether it was maybe he saw me doing something for our, our campus ministry and he would, he would express thankfulness for that or a way that maybe he saw me being a friend to someone else and he would thank me for that. And, and then he, he would always do the same thing. He would lean back in his chair and he had an underbite and he'd smile and he'd kind of look like the godfather. And then he'd say, and I, I want to invite you to take a step of faith. He would and, and then whatever came next, it, sometimes it was just like a really hard challenge to be more disciplined or to be more vulnerable or to be more faithful or to be more bold in proclaiming the gospel or to take a step in obedience that seemed like just totally impossible to me. I would, I would know that because he loves me and he sees me and he recognizes this real potential in me th- that I was always compelled to accept whatever the challenge was. Like, I, I wanted to accept that because from what maybe from another figure would have felt like a burden placed upon me, from Rusty, it felt like this loving and exciting invitation to grow and to be more than I thought I could be and to experience more of God than I thought I could experience. And, and so what I learned from that is that real love and real respect from an authority figure to a disciple yields yields compliance and, and a positive response to invitation. And so if you're a parent in the room, a pastor in the room, a parish leader in the room, like take note. Like when you really love the people you're trying to disciple and see grow and mature and you really respect them and treat them in a way you really appreciate them, when you call them to hard things, they're going to be a lot more likely to respond well to that. And, and that's what's happening in the opening prayer in Philippians. Right? Paul has told this church how much he loves them, how he longs to be with them. He expresses gratitude for the ways they've been faithful to him. They've been kind to him. They've been faithful in ministry. He sees what they're doing. He's pleased with it. And then as, as it comes to a close, this prayer comes to a close, he begins painting a portrait of the, of the kind of people that he prays they will become. Not because he's displeased with who they currently are, but, but he paints them a picture of the people they will become, a more godly, more loving, more wise people. And he invites them to take steps of faith. And he reminds them what it's all for. It's not so that he'll be impressed with them or so that they'll earn his love or God's love. It's because when they do this, God's going to be glorified in it. That it's going to be good. And, and because of the relationship that it's clear Paul has with this people... I have confidence that throughout the letter, when Paul calls them to hard things, like really hard things, I'm guessing the Philippians, when they read this letter, didn't receive these as like weighty, unfair burdens from an absent or overbearing leader. I bet they heard these as 
loving invitations and hopes from a brother, a friend, and a father figure who really loved them. See, Paul is modeling the love of God for his people, even in the way that he writes to them, because this is God's disposition toward us in Christ, is that God wants us to grow so that we can experience the joy of knowing him more and more day by day. He wants us to grow, not because he, he hopes that we'll grow enough that one day he'll be pleased enough with us to love us or that he will grow enough so that we'll be worthy of his love, but he wants us to grow because he loves us. Because he wants more for us, because he desires us to experience all the fullness and and glory and joy of participating in the things of his kingdom and understanding the depths of his love for them. See, there's no love in, in wanting someone to be stagnant in their current situation. Real love involves celebrating a person and and the relationship you have with them and the things that you see in them that are are worthy and commendable, but also wanting them to mature into an even more lovely image of God in the world. And so, like, if you're married in the room, you understand this. Like, you understand that you, you probably love your husband and wife so much, just in ways you can't even imagine, for who they are exactly today. But you don't want them to stay that way. Right? Like you want them to continue to grow and mature and, and experience more and, and to be more faithful so that, that even in your gray years, they're not even the same person they are right now because they've been growing so much. Like that's real love is this love that, that wants someone to grow, to invite them into more. You can love someone fully for who they are in the moment, but if you really love them, you'll also want more for them than for them to remain where they are. And, and you should also love yourself enough to realize that staying where you are is not exciting or honorable. Right? Like you, can, you can recognize that, that God loves you fully for who you are right now, that you're worthy of, of belonging to him, that you're worthy of, of real beauty and grace in the kingdom of God, and also know that like, I, I don't want to be who I am today in 10 years. Like that, that would be a disappointment, right? Like there's more to experience. There's growth to be had. And so with this kind of hope in mind, this tone in mind, I want to focus on verses 6 and 7 for a minute. Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Philippians 1.6 is, is probably one of the most encouraging passages in the entire Bible. And it's especially true for any of us in the room, which is probably everyone in the room who considers themselves a Christian, who at times struggles with doubt or insecurity in your faith. You're like Philippians 1.6 is encouraging if you ever worry that, that you're just not going to be able to remain faithful until your dying breath. Like you've seen maybe friends or, or family members walk away from the church, walk away from the faith, and you just wonder, like, I don't know if I have it in me to, to stay the course, or, or maybe... You, 
some of you struggle with just thinking that God's going to love you enough to not give up on you because you see all your failures far more than you see anything in you that's good. And so, so you just beat yourself up and think eventually God's going to give up on me. He's going to get tired of me. He's going to stop caring or, or the people around me are going to stop caring. But Philippians 1.6 is good news. It's a huge encouragement because Paul, he's not talking to a group of perfect people. He's talking to a congregation much like ours that's far from perfect, facing a ton of uncertainty, but he sees the work that God is doing in their ministry, and he has full confidence that God's going to continue to work through them, that God's going to finish the work that he began because Paul knows that's just what God does. If God starts something, he's going to finish it. And we see this throughout Scripture in the first chapters of Genesis. We see in the, the, the seven days of creation that, that in this transition from the sixth to seventh day, the, the, the words of Genesis says that, that God realized that his work was finished. And then this theme comes up again when Jesus is, is participating in the work of making a new creation through the cross, as he's dying, absorbing the fullness of God's wrath for sin, absorbing the fullness of God's judgment toward a sinful people, the, the weightiness of death and, and all of the, the things that come with that. And what does Jesus cry out from the cross at the conclusion of that? He says, it is finished. And so then, when Paul gives us this theology of Christians being a new creation, which is littered throughout the New Testament, that like if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, then you are a new creation. You don't think God's going to finish that too? Like He's going to finish the work that he began. If you are a new creation, regardless of how weak you are, how sinful you are, how, how often you fail, how much you doubt, it's just not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon him, and he always finishes the work that he starts. Paul sees this church of varying degrees of spiritual maturity and obedience, but he sees that, that there is evidence that God's been among them and that God's going to finish the work. So if you're a baptized Christian in the room who participates in the grace of God through faith in Christ, regardless of your current ability to obey or to articulate all the truths that you think you should be able to articulate or to be faithful in all of the ways that you should, you should be faithful, you should know that, that God's begun something in you and he's going to complete it and you can't get in the way of that. Like God's going to finish that work. So long as you respond in in, in faith to God, when he calls you, he's going to keep finishing the work. He's going to keep doing the work, right? And, like, we hold that intention with these warning passages in Scripture that warn us from walking away from the faith. But so long as we continue to heed the call of God to come back to him, regardless of how much we fail, regardless of how weak we are, however much doubts we have, if we continue coming back to him, he's going to finish the work. See, Paul's not expressing confidence in the Philippians. He knows them well enough not to do that. And I'm not expressing confidence in you. Because I know you well enough not to do that. And that's not an insult. It's just the reality that my confidence that God's going to finish the work that he began in you is that I have confidence in the God who always finishes the work that he starts and not in people who sometimes don't. Right? I don't have enough confidence in me to suggest that, that God's going to finish the work that he began in me. 
but I have evidence in the past that God has begun work in me. And I have evidence throughout the, the history of time, space, and scripture to show that God always finishes the work he begins. And so I can trust that he's going to finish this work in me. That there's going to come a day when I'm face to face with the Lord Jesus at judgment and God's going to be totally pleased in, in a son that he has perfected through his grace and his work and his love, not my own. And so if God started working in you, he's going to finish it. Even if he just started yesterday. Let's skip to verses 9 through 11. The ending of this prayer, Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul, he doesn't know if he's ever going to see these people again. He really doesn't. That's clear kind of throughout the whole letter. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see these people again. And so in the previous verses, he's expressed this confidence in the fact that they don't need him, right? Like God's going to finish the work. They don't need him to come back for the work to be finished. They need the grace of God. They need the things of God. And now in verses 9 through 11, he does something that I love. He exhorts them toward sanctification by telling them the way that he's praying for them. Like, this is something that we should really cherish and take note of. What a beautiful thing. Like, what an awesome thing it is to know that someone who loves you has been praying for you. And how much more beautiful then to know how they've been praying for you. Like, what an intimate thing to know. That someone who loves me has not only been praying for me, but now I know the way they've been praying for me. And this is something that I've always loved about Paul's ministry. And, and I, I, a few times a year, I kind of take this play out of his playbook. And I'll just begin, you know, messaging or calling or, or, or telling people in person that I've been praying for. Like, hey, I've just been praying this for you. Like, I want you to know I've been praying for you, and this is what I've been praying. And it, it always proves to just be such a, a loving ministry. And, and then when I receive that sort of thing, when somebody tells me, I've been praying this for you, like, it's such a beautiful thing. It's such an encouraging thing because they're not saying, hey, this is what I want to see out of you. This is the way that I want you to be different. They're saying, I love you enough that I've been asking God to do this work in you. I love you enough that I want to see like God take you and allow you to experience something even better. And, and I, I hope that, that we'll learn from this. Like start telling people in your parish the way you've been praying for them. And especially do that if you've been praying for them in a way that's not just like what they've asked for prayer when y'all take prayer requests. Although you could tell them, like, I've been praying for that. But if you have like a specific hope or, or vision or, or just something God's put on your heart to pray for somebody, let them know. Like, man, I've been praying this for you. just want you to know I love you and I've been praying this for you. And if you don't know what to pray for someone, Philippians 1, 9 through 11 is a good place to start because this is what Paul says. He says he's praying that their love will abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that they can know what really matters and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. Like that's a prayer worth praying for anyone at any time. But what's it mean? Because it's, it's pretty wordy. Right? There's a lot going on. So it starts, Paul says, he wants their love to abound more and more. That he's praying that their love will abound more and more. In 
in the Greek, there's a, a few different words for love. The, the word here is agape love, which is brotherly love, love for others. And agape love is the central moral ethic of the Christian life in the Bible. Right? Like, if, if there's one thing that God wants his people to be, it is loving, to be filled with this agape love. Jesus says that they will know you are Christians by your love. They'll know you're my people by your love. Jesus and Paul both affirm that, that the entire law of God is summed up in the commandments to love God with everything you have and to love people as yourself. And so, so Paul's not just praying that they'll, they'll abound in love and that they'll have more affection or emotional connection to other people. Like that's a shallow view of love, just that you feel a lot of things for people. But, but it's a prayer that, that Paul wants them to grow in Christian maturity, in joy, in righteousness, in obedience, and that the most simple way of saying that is that they would grow in love because to grow in love is to grow in every moral and ethical way because there's nothing of any moral consequence that isn't dependent upon love. Like, like that's why the law is summed up in loving God and loving others. Because if you're always loving God and always loving others at every moment of every day, then you'll never sin. Like you just won't. It will be impossible. And so, so morality is, is rooted in love. And so Paul wants them to grow in love. And then he explains that their abounding in love isn't just, isn't just dependent upon like this nebulous idea of love, but it's dependent upon growing in knowledge and discernment, which leads to their ability to recognize what really matters. Like, that's what he means when he says, approve what is excellent. He, he basically, he's praying that they'll be able to recognize what really matters, what's of ultimate consequence. And so Paul wants the church to grow in knowledge because he knows that knowledge cultivates love. Knowledge allows us to know what is truly important, and that will lead us to be more godly because we'll be more loving and we'll experience more joy. And so if knowledge cultivates love, we need to consider the sorts of knowledge and discernment that we're growing in. Basically, what, what kind of knowledge are you, are you acquiring? Are you acquiring knowledge that's going to really lead you to understanding the things that really matter in life? Like, are you going to grow in the kind of knowledge that's going to make you more aware of the beauty and glory of God that's going to cultivate in you love for God and love for others? Or are, are you growing in kind of the so-called knowledge of the world which doesn't cultivate biblical agape love. Instead, it cultivates fear and anxiety and violence and all sorts of licentiousness, and ultimately it cultivates a love for yourself. Like, knowledge cultivates love all the time. Anytime you acquire knowledge, it's going to cultivate some sort of love in you. The question is, is what kind of knowledge is cultivating what kind of love? And so what we want is to know God and the things that God loves because the more we know God and the things that God loves, the more we'll know what actually matters in life, what's actually important in life, and that will be able to make us more discerning, more wise, which will lead us more and more to have a pure mind and a pure heart. And when that happens, ultimately... We will be abounding in love, which will result in good works, in right behavior, in righteous living. See, real knowledge is knowledge that changes us. It's not just an acquisition of facts. 
And hear this, when you come to know the Son of God and Jesus Christ, when you come to know Him, when your knowledge is of the love of God that's been revealed to you through the Son of God, you will be changed. You will be changed into a person who is more loving. You'll know Him and you'll know His love. In fact, to know Him is to know love. And so your love will lead to to good conduct. And that's what Paul's getting at when he says the fruit of righteousness. But, but don't be misled. Paul isn't praying that the people in Philippi will get smarter so that they'll do better, so that they'll be righteous, so that God will love them. Like That's not the logical thing that Paul's doing here. E- even though he wants all of those things. Right? Like he wants them to have more knowledge so that they will do better and be more righteous. But ultimately, we know that it's not just this idea that like y'all need to do better, and I'm praying that you'll do better, because he says the fruit of righteousness, quote, comes from Christ Jesus. Right? It's not something that's cultivated by us or by the Philippians. So Jesus produces in us the fruit of righteousness, and that happens really in two ways in the scriptures. There's kind of two ways in which we're made righteous in Christ. The first is like substantive righteousness. There's a reality in which the more we know God, the more we know about the things that God loves, the more we understand the depths of love that God has for us in Jesus, we understand his word, we're going to become more righteous. Like we're going to go from being really sinful and foolish and broken to slowly day by day, week by week, decade by decade, being a, a transitioning from one degree of glory to the next, being more holy, more pure. Like, like you will be, you won't be sinless in this life, but you will sin less in this life, right? Like God is going to make you more righteous if you're growing in your knowledge of him and his love. But there's another way in which Christ gives us his righteousness, in which the right fruit of righteousness comes from Christ, and that and it's like legal righteousness. It's this idea that that if we were to stand before God on the day of judgment on our own, we would be condemned every time. We would be considered guilty, unrighteous. But because of the work of Christ on the cross to, to die for our sins, to absorb the wrath of God, to die and kill death and raise from the dead to put death to death forever that now when we have faith in God have faith in Christ are united to him then God reckons our faith as righteousness which means that that when we come to God on the day of judgment we won't be considered righteous because over time we became more righteous we'll be considered righteous because Jesus is righteous and we put our hope in him Right? And so there's two ways in which righteousness comes from Christ, and there's zero way in which righteousness comes from us. Like, it's not just like, okay, work harder, read more, study better, love better, and then you'll be righteous. It's like, no, like, lean into the fact that God's grace is permeating all of this. That, that over time, as you submit yourself to the will of God, that he will gracefully reveal himself to you and make you love more, make you obey more, allow you to experience more joy. And then all of it comes, comes down to this, that, that God's going to get the glory in that. Like that as we submit ourselves to the grace and sovereignty of God, that God will be glorified in it as we experience more and more of him and grow in abounding in love. 
I pray that we'll be this kind of people that, that grow in knowledge, that pursue the sort of knowledge of God that will cultivate an understanding of what really matters in life. Because when we grow in that kind of knowledge and, and begin to be able to discern what really matters in life, we're, we're going to be able to show our neighbors a better way because they're going to see, like, oh, these people don't think all the things that we think are really important are the most important things. Like, there's something even more important to them. They, they understand something more, and it, and it works itself out in this loving community where they love one another. They seem to love God. They love me, and I don't know why they love me. And it's because, well, God has loved us, and he's invited us to participate in these things. Uh, as we work through Philippians over the next eight weeks, what we're going to see are, are a lot of texts that, that challenge us and convict us. Um. But, but interwoven throughout that will just be this theme of kind of indomitable joy. Like, that no matter what comes, no matter what we experience, like, God has, has given us everything in Christ, and so we can be joyful. Indeed, it's our duty to be joyful. Uh, there's going to be this theme of brotherly love and unity. And it, and it begins here in, in these verses that we've read. And before we preach through this book that calls us to hard things, I want to tell you all something on really not only on behalf of myself, but on behalf of our elders and parish leadership. Um, and when I say elders, I, I'm also including Nick and Tim, who will be elders in about 20 minutes or something. Um, but we want to tell you, we really love y'all. We really, really love you. And we want to see you flourish in the faith. We want to see you abounding in love and growing in the knowledge of God and experience the fullness of his riches and his, his grace and his mercy. And when I was reading this passage and trying to write this sermon, the tone that Paul has that I kind of alluded to earlier just kept convicting me. Because there have been times that I know of that either me or, or maybe one of our other pastors have, have stood at this pulpit and called you to really hard things without making it undeniably clear how much we love and cherish y'all as, as brothers and sisters and friends and, and partners in the work of ministry and and, and I realize, like, that means that there have been times that what I've done unintentionally is placed just weighty burdens on y'all of expectation rather than these loving invitations of, like, let's do, like, let's, let's go to the Lord together. Let's grow together. Um, and, and as we go through this book, I, I want y'all to be able to receive the challenges and even convicting passages in Philippians as loving invitations to take steps of faith and to experience more. And not just, like, these harsh weights of, of burden that your pastors are laying on you. And so, so if there's been a time that I've done that, that you've experienced me or any of our leaders that way, I just want to say, like, we're sorry. Like, that is not our hope. And, and so to close, I, I want you to hear this, and it will sound familiar. Um, brothers and sisters of Sojourn Montrose, we, your leaders, thank God when we think of you. We thank him always in every prayer of ours for you all making our prayer a prayer of joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we are sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for us to feel this way. 
about you all because we hold you in our hearts, for we are partakers with you of grace. For God is our witness how we love you with the love that comes only from Christ. And it is our prayer that your love will abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you can approve the things that are excellent and that really matter and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with all the fruit of righteousness that comes through him to the glory and praise of God. Brother and sister, I hope you hear that. And for those of you who are in the room who, who aren't Christians or, or, or don't have a church family, maybe you're just visiting for the first time, I want to invite you over these next eight weeks to engage, to engage with, with the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, but also just come and see the glory and love that God has given to his people through his son, Jesus. Come and experience the, the radical love and hospitality of God that is expressed through these people. Like visit a neighborhood parish, you'll experience it. Because what I have confidence in, having been a, a part of, of these people for eight years now, is, is that they're going to welcome you. They're, they're going to be patient with you. They're going to see that you get your questions answered, that you experience the, the fullness of love and dignity that you deserve because God has made you in his image. I'm confident of that. They've proven it over and over and over. And so let's engage with the grace of God together. Let's pray and then let's come to the table. Father, we thank you um, that, that nothing, nothing of eternal consequence is fully dependent upon us. Um, that, that you are a God who begins work and you complete it. And I, I pray that we would all present ourselves to you as your workmanship and invite you to come and, and show us more of your love. Take us to, to deeper levels of faith and maturity and love for you and for others and that you would reveal the beauty of your son to us week after week as we study this book together. Pray that you would make this a congregation marked by the grace of God through the son of God empowered by the spirit of God. Make us a people of real love and humility, of encouragement and of peace. And would you use us today in the ways that you've begun using us and, and just keep using us until that final day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.